Welcome back to the program. Sometimes the reality of war is just too complex and absurd to understand in real time. Perhaps that's why books about war are so powerful and important. It's why novels like Catch-22, Slaughterhouse-Five, The Things They Carried, and A Rumor of War have been essential reading for our understanding. Equally important to our understanding is grasping the impact of PTSD on those who served or those who, for whatever reason, journeyed into the heart of darkness of combat. While embedded with troops in Iraq, my guest journalist David Morris almost died when the Humvee he was riding in encountered an IED. His new book explores his own trauma from that event, as well as the history and science of PTSD. David Morris has written for Slate, Salon, the Los Angeles Times, and The Nation. His new book is The Evil Hours, a biography of post-traumatic stress disorder. It is my pleasure to welcome David Morris to the program. David, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. PTSD as something that is defined in DMS and something that, that psychologists and psychiatrists have talked about has been around for quite a while, and yet it really is only in the past maybe 10, 15, 20 years that we've really begun to focus on it and even to understand it. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's important to understand that PTSD is, is a product, um, as it's understood today, is a product of the protest movement of the 1970s that rose up against the Vietnam War. Uh, a group of, uh, of protesters and anti-war uh, uh, advocates from the left, a group called uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, uh, the most, most famous member of which is uh, John Kerry, our current Secretary of State, uh, and they felt like the uh, it was a group of people that were protesting the Vietnam War, but they felt that there was no meaningful distinction to be made between the politics of the war and the, uh, their own psychological uh, difficulties in, in returning from from Vietnam. So, and and they fought for uh, and agitated for about ten years, um, beginning in 1970, uh, before PTSD was officially recognized by psychiatry in 1980 when it uh, was officially entered into the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, or the DSM, um, which is kind of the Bible of psychiatry. Uh, and once you get into the DSM, then um, you have medicine will officially recognize and treat, uh, and health insurance companies will recognize and treat uh, that disorder. Um, but it's important to recognize as well that, that PTSD, just because we recognized it in 1980, uh, didn't mean that it didn't exist before. And in fact, if you look back at even prehistoric records or pre what we do know about prehistoric times, um, PTSD is certain aspects of it are uh, an essential element of uh, human beings from what we can tell. Um, and one of the ways we know this is researchers have gone back uh, to New Guinea uh, and, and interviewed tribal warriors there from, from tri the tribes in the, some of the, mo the remotest parts of New Guinea. Um, and these people, the tribes of Papua New Guinea, are thought to be some of the most well-preserved uh, examples of what mankind was like before uh, agriculture, before industrialization, before modern um, technology uh, happened. And interviewing these warriors, people, anthropologists have discovered that they report having nightmares uh, post-battle uh, in particular, uh, nightmares of being abandoned by their buddies. Um, so there is an aspect of PTSD that, that is immortal. Um, and then there are other, other aspects of it 
that have been more influenced by religion, religious beliefs and by culture at the time. Uh, and here's an example. There is, if you consider the flashback, which is considered today to be one of the, the cardinal symptoms of PTSD, um, in fact, a group of British researchers from King's College went and examined the memoirs and accounts and records of war veterans from conflicts predating the era, the age of cinema, and they discovered that uh, veterans who served in the 19th century did not report flashbacks. Uh, and in fact, a flashback is a, a term borrowed from cinema. Uh, and, and, for example, Civil War veterans are far more likely to report being haunted by ghosts, spirits, and demons, uh, and, and the, uh, the ghosts of, of fallen comrades. So there is, this, there is a part of PTSD that is immortal uh, and unitary and universal, and then there's other parts of it that seem to be very influenced uh, by culture and by how humans, uh, human culture has evolved over time. One of the interesting questions in the way PTSD evolves is the degree to which it is about something that happens to us versus something that we see, something that we witness, and the impact of that. And there does seem to be a fundamental difference between those two things. Um, well, yeah, and they both play into each other. I mean, they're both connected, and um, one of the sort of interesting things when you spend time in a war zone is how visually stimulating and visually interesting mm. it is. Um, and you see dead bodies, you see wounded people, you see, uh, you know, life pushed to its extreme edge. And for the same reason that people slow down and rubberneck on the freeway, these are the same impulses that uh, govern our behavior in warfare. And so people, the idea of seeing really awful things is at once really fascinating and it's very and repulsive, and it's very hard to look away. And for some reason, you end up with a lot of soldiers will come back with visions of, and, uh, excuse me, uh, natural disaster survivors will come back with uh, haunted by visions of things that they saw and that they looked at. And so there is this just visual sense that the, the mind almost seems to want to curate all of these awful uh, and uh, you know repulsive scenes uh, that are available to, to you know that are on view during war and in situations like tsunamis and, and Hurricane Katrina, for example. Um, but there is there is interesting this visual as you as you alluded to this visual experience um, and these collecting of of horrific and hallucinatory images that that seems to haunt uh, in the aftermath of traumatic events. Is there a difference with respect to a traumatic event that is expected versus unexpected, a natural disaster or rape, for example, versus the experience of combat where in some ways you're prepared for what's about to happen? Uh, well, yeah, in fact, that's the feeling of being overwhelmed, surprised, or helpless. Um, those are the most trauma-producing type situations. Uh, and for example, you do find with some with uh, the uh, Hanoi Hilton cohort, which is a, was a group of uh, prisoner prisoners of war held in Hanoi, uh, the most famous of whom was uh, John McCain, the uh, the senator from Arizona uh, and and one time presidential candidate. Those uh, that group of prisoners of war had been were generally older, better educated, and had spent uh, a significant amount of time and years of time in training as as pilots and aircrew. Uh, and because they had 
such great preparation, and so, and many of them, in fact, had been to a mock prisoner of war camp before even deploying to, to Vietnam. Um, and so they had a better frame of reference. They had a better uh, understanding uh, of what could happen to them, and they had some training and some um, resilience, resiliency to fall back on because they had spent so much time uh, preparing and thinking uh, and maturing into their their social roles um, as leaders and as air crew, so there is always that element of preparation uh, and training, and being you know, and, and there are a number of uh, factors that that researchers call either protective factors or risk factors that all play into whether or not a person is is going to end up with PTSD in the long term. So a person who came from uh, an abusive uh, family, who uh, struggled, maybe came from a poorer family and is surprised and overwhelmed, uh, and in the case of a rape survivor, uh, is raped, then that that person is far more vulnerable and far more likely to develop PTSD um, just in and of those those risk factors. In addition to that, rape is also considered to be the most most common and toxic form of trauma. Um, so it's important to remember that not not all trauma is not all traumas are equal, and there is sort of a, a spectrum of human responses um, that we see. Do we know if there's a genetic component at all in terms of predisposition to to PTSD? Yeah, there is some uh, evidence, and it's very the genetic, the epigenetics um, mm-hmm. behind PTSD is just is a new area of inquiry, and so it's difficult to say we don't know um, a whole lot about it yet, but there does appear to be uh, physiological changes that occur uh, in human beings, uh, particularly with respect to the stress hormone cortisol, uh, which is a, a stress hormone that is uh, the hormone that is released under uh, in times of stress. And the way human beings, uh, the way the human body secretes cortisol is communicated genetically. So um, a very interesting research study was done by Rachel Yehuda here at the VA Bronx, and she discovered that the offspring of Holocaust survivors um, from the maternal side, so the grandmother um, was a, uh, the, the grandmother in this case was, uh, had survived the Holocaust, her offspring would have a different cortisol uh, stress hormone response than a control subject, than, than another person, than, than the offspring of someone that had not uh, come from a, a Holocaust survivor family. So there was even the way the human body uh, is organized physiologically does in fact change uh, after trauma. And if you think about that from, from just a basic evolutionary standpoint, uh, that is an understandable and expectable outcome in the sense that an organism is going to respond to its, the, the stimuli in its environment, uh, be they adverse stimuli or positive stimuli, and uh, would transmit that to their offspring in order to maximize the survival and the thriving of, of their offspring. So there is this uh, genetic, and, and so the cor- and cortisol is a very important uh, stress hormone that's connected to, that, that impacts the entire functioning of the human body. Um, if you have too much, um, if you have too much cortisol, you tend to suffer other somatic difficulties and ulcers and, and all a lot of the normal um, somatic problems that we associate with people that that have a lot of stress in their life. Um, so there are there are a bunch of uh, of possible genetic impacts to PTSD down the road uh, 
that we are just now beginning to get a sense of. To what extent does philosophy, philosophical outlook, worldview, even religion, play a role in how we view evil in the world, for example, and how that shapes how we respond to trauma? Well, interestingly, and that's a that's a tricky question, but uh, but one that I've thought about a great deal. And one of the one of the things that is of interest is actually when you look at who tends to develop PTSD down the line, uh, and you find that people that have a uh, more religious out outlook, for lack of a better phrase, who have a sense of a um, omnipotent being who is looking out for them and for whom uh, their destiny has been decided uh, and who has, who, who has some sort of control over their life on Earth um, is less likely to develop PTSD because there is this sense of the universe is, is a meaningful, ordered place that is being governed by a beneficent uh, being, by God, and I am not able to control, it is beyond my control, and in fact, his design is uh, being enacted in the world. Uh, and, I, and I saw this, uh, interestingly, when I was in Iraq, I was on patrol with, uh, with a Marine unit and some Iraqi soldiers, and uh, without my prompting, this, this Iraqi uh, soldier told me that he didn't worry about uh, getting blown up or dying because he knew that Allah had, had already been decided and that it was in his hands and that it was um, improper for him to consider to to worry about it himself since since God had already um, had already decided what would happen. So in this sort of surprising way, uh, and I'm not a particularly um, orthodox religious person, you do find that a person who decides, who takes a more existential perspective and says life is absurd, life is meaningless, life is without order, and it's it's a moral, morally chaotic situation, that sort of person is confronted with a heavier, a heavier sort of philosophical burden because they have to find um, it is incumbent upon them to discover their own meaning and their own order. Uh, and after trauma, a lot of people do. Uh, not everyone who has a you know particularly formally religious background is going to find uh, trauma to be you know will be it rape, war, or a tsunami is not going to find that um, experience necessarily meaningful or under the, prov- the, the providence of, uh, of God. You know, a lot of people, um, Philip Caputo being a, a notable example, mm-hmm. the author of A Rumor of War and a Vietnam Veteran, did not find, um, he, you know, he, he was raised Catholic and did not find uh, that the war, uh, did not find the war to be a faith-affirming experience. Um, so it informs a lot of, as it informs, you know, every shape every decision of a person's life, um, you know, our, our feelings towards God, towards any omnipotent being, um, plays a huge role in how trauma is interpreted and, and um, managed by, uh, by a victim. The corollary of that, as you talk about, is this sense in, in PTSD of always trying to find deeper meaning in the events, particularly on the anniversary of events. Um, well, yeah, and that's in, in the book. I, I sort of dwell on this idea of apophenia, mm-hmm. which is this term that comes from uh, psychiatry, and addresses and, and is related to the idea of, and it's sort of similar to paranoia, of finding meaningful connections between unconnected events. Um, for instance, there, you know, there were people will, will always talk about. Uh, in, in my book, I just I talk about how the day before I hit uh, a very serious IED. 
for my IED ambush in Baghdad the day before someone had asked me if I had ever been in an IED ambush before, um, which I had not. And everyone in the, in the Humvee that day, when I was asked that question, uh, got really upset with the soldier who asked it because that is considered to be uh, extraordinary, extraordinary bad luck to ask that kind of question. And so I, when I was hit by uh, an ID the next day, it was both surprising and unsurprising because it, it's easy to feel as if um, you know the, the behavior that governs victims and um, uh, you know natural disaster victims and soldiers in uh, in an active war zone, and even when they come home, their behavior is very similar to. Uh, a lot of the rituals uh, and talismans that govern the behavior of gamblers. You know, there's a lot of a lot of faith is put in luck, and good luck charms, and good luck T-shirts, um, and doing things the same way because doing you know performing certain rituals will provide a person with good luck. So there is this this different kind of relationship, this almost magical thinking that can evolve in wartime situations, um, and 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 plays out in the form of elaborate superstitions uh, for, the, for you know for instance in the Marine Corps it has long been considered bad luck to eat apricots uh, apricots in uh, if you're ever in a if you're ever in a humvee or an armored vehicle um, to the point that the the MREs the the the, uh, the field rations that that marines and soldiers are issued have they they la- they stopped including apricots in the rations because people were convinced that if you ate apricots, you were going to have a, a technical malfunction, uh, either in your vehicle or you know, in your armored personnel carrier or in your Humvee. So those are the sorts of sorts of things like you know, because war is so chaotic and so morally chaotic and confusing uh, and anarchic, there you, you do find people looking for these you know relatively morally neutral events and items and imbuing them with a with a special sacred magical power uh, and and the idea of good luck charms in the form of soldiers um, particular soldiers or particular Iraqi interpreters or Afghan interpreters this is very common one of the things you talk about in the evil hours are the treatments for PTSD things like prolonged exposure and cognitive therapy talk a little bit about those but in a broader sense what do the treatments tell us about PTSD itself well, the treatments um, there are there are a rainbow. There are a wide variety of treatments for PTSD out there, uh, and I'll briefly just discuss the the top two or three that the VA, that the the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs prefers. Um, and the first one of those is is prolonged exposure. It's the number one VA uh, individual psychotherapy uh, that is approved for use by the VA. And prolonged exposure is. Uh, Generally derived from the ideas of Ivan Pavlov, um, the you know conditioning and classical learning theory, uh, and the thought behind prolonged exposure is that if you tell the story of your worst trauma over and over again, what they call your index trauma, um, if you tell that story of it over and over again, eventually that memory will lose its its heavy traumatic charge and become just like any other normal memory. And uh, so for me, I underwent prolonged exposure, and so I was asked to tell the story of my IED ambush, uh, October 10th, 2007, in ba- in southern Baghdad. Um, the 
prolonged exposure has a really good track record, a lot of great science behind it, and it works. It's, it shows improvement in 60% uh, of people who, who undergo it. But for me, I experienced significant side effects, uh, and it did not, and it actually um, prolonged exposure therapy, uh, which is the number one psychotherapy offered by the VA, it actually made my symptoms worse. Uh, it made me, it made it really hard to sleep. Uh, read or write or even write. So um, that I discontinued that therapy rather quickly. Um, the second, uh, the VA's number two psychotherapy, cognitive processing therapy, uh, is quite different. And that, um, in, in a way, its own way, sort of resembles more traditional psychotherapies, although it's usually done in a group setting. Uh, and in cognitive processing therapy, uh, it, you are asked, a, a survivor or a veteran is asked to examine their thoughts or feelings uh, about their war and about the, the the events that they went through that are troubling them, and examine if their thoughts and feelings about it have led to uh, other problems uh, in their life. For, for instance, it's very common for rape survivors to think that they in some way brought it on themselves, that they are at fault, and that either they um, asked to be raped in some manner or they did they failed to fight off their assailants um, enough. And so there's this very, very pernicious, very painful and destructive process of self-blame that occurs in many, many rape victims that, that really just makes the damage a lot worse. And so CPT, or cognitive processing therapy, will ask, uh, one of the questions it will ask is, are those feelings of you being a bad person or being marked by a scarlet letter of a kind, of a sort, is that really a, a um, legitimate, uh, empirically supportable um, reality-tested thought. I mean, is that can you really say that that was something that that you you did not fight off your assailant enough? Is that is that a valid conclusion to come to? And to sort so that if you start with those sorts of questions and examine um, how those it, those those thoughts end up impacting your feelings about yourself and your feelings about the world generally. Um, and so what this what this kind of says to me, you look at these various different therapies that treat PTSD, and they all kind of uh, approach it, they all kind of tackle a different side of it. Um, and, and there's no really one signal, you know, one really overarching therapy that everyone responds to in the same way that there's no one overarching, um, you know, miracle drug or golden bullet therapy that that really cures people. Um, so there is this problem with PTSD because it doesn't appear to be um, as to, to com contrast it against, say, depression, which appears, you know, which is far more responsive to SSRIs and other drugs like Zoloft uh, and Prozac and, and what have you. There is really no one golden bullet drug for PTSD, which just points to how complex uh, and how how very individual the responses are to PTSD. So it's very it's important to recognize that it is in the catalog of of maladies. It's in the the Book of Woe, the the DSM, but it's really kind of in its own category, and it's, it's very difficult to compare to any other mental health disorder, and it's very difficult to treat because it, you know any number of things you know, millions of different kinds of events can cause PTSD. And, you know, anything, you know, so many things that happen in war, so many things that happen uh, in streets and in crime situations. So it's really the, the human response to, to uh, trauma is as diverse. You know, there, there's, there are millions of responses to that in the world. With respect to your own personal experience, did you think about your experience differently 
from somebody that was engaged in combat as opposed to someone embedded and there to kind of bear witness? Was there, was there something in that, that that you thought about and that, that impacted you in your recovery? Um, well, being a reporter in a war zone and being a soldier in a war zone um, is more similar than you might think. Um, and a lot of people, will, you know, I've had a number of people say to me, well, you know, it wasn't the same for you. Uh, which I would argue uh, is false because I was, you know, many, most of the reporters I knew um, that spent time in Iraq spent most of their time outside the wire going out in patrols and actually seeing combat operations on a daily basis. And, and I mean, most reporters will, will be, you know, it's very clear when you work as a war reporter that the story in order for, you know, the, the real story is really happening where the bullets are flying. So you got to get out there and see it. Uh, be a part of it. Um, and so there is an element of a very strong resemblance in terms of the uh, types of trauma that a, that a war journalist will see uh, be exposed to in a war. In a war. Uh, and and the, there are, there, you know, there are two other major differences that I'll also highlight between um, the soldier experience and the war correspondent experience. Uh, and, and that's this, the, uh, war correspondents typically it's against the Geneva Convention to carry a weapon uh, in a war zone for for a journalist. So reporters are slightly more defenseless than soldiers. So they have less, they have a less uh, a reduced ability to control their environment and def- to defend themselves uh, in combat. Uh, a fact which um, we know is more likely to cause PTSD down the road. So there is there is that. Uh, and the other thing. Uh, that, that puts war correspondents at risk um, is the tendency to jump from hotspot to hotspot and, and to travel from, say, Libya or Syria on a moment's notice to a different part of the Middle East or to return back to their news bureau, be it London, Paris, or New York, or wherever their, 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 uh, their news outlet is headquartered, and to, to go from the war zone uh, alone and to not have uh, and to return to a news environment or a corporate environment that has where no one has been in a war zone and so there's there are less there exists for war correspondents um, because of their comparative rarity uh, less opportunities to be understood uh, upon returning home and a lot of you know no one thinks uh, NPR war correspondents or New York Times war correspondents for their service. Uh, even though I, I, you know, I would argue that that you know a reporter uh, from you know for from a major news organization is contribute you know or any news organization is contributing to the cause of democracy because it's an important, although it's not as overtly patriotic, um, it is an an essential part of our democracy to have an informed uh, electorate and to to have a transparent. Um, an understandable and discernible um, military force, and, and reporters are, play a large role in that. It is also particularly interesting to think about the effects of PTSD on a reporter that comes back from a war zone or continues reporting after, because one of the symptoms that you talk about that is so prevalent is this failure to live fully in the present. Um, yeah, and... Well, I think, I mean, that, that's sort of an issue because, and it can exacerbate things in the sense that, for instance, when I returned from Iraq, uh, you know, I was a writer and was publishing on it the entire time um, and continuing to write and continuing to introspect and to meditate and think on 
uh, my war experience, um, which I think both had a, you know, had a mixed effect. It, it had a good effect in the sense that um, writing about your wartime experience or your traumatic experience of, of any kind can help you process and locate patterns uh, and, and create your own story that makes sense of the trauma. So it's really good in that regard, but there's also the sense of trying to, if you, if you spend time willingly um, thinking and meditating on really tragic events, it has a tendency to make you ruminate in kind of a negative way and to, to sort of over, you know, obsess about these um, uh, negative experiences. So you have to kind of, you know, as, as a writer and as for any kind of artist, you have to sort of strike a balance of being, you know, of finding some meaning, finding some, some coherence uh, in the chaos of your past, but then also, you know, uh, exerting a certain amount of self-care and, and uh, not dwelling on it too much and, and to, you know, focus on things that, that bring you greater peace and, and greater insight that have nothing to do with war or, or crime or rape, natural disaster, or what have you. David Morris, the book is The Evil Hours, a biography of post-traumatic stress disorder. David, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you for having me. Good to thank talk you. to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.